You are listening to Talking Machines. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. And today, Ryan, you're going to introduce us to generative adversarial networks. Yeah, there's been this very interesting recent work in thinking about adversarial training for generative models. And I generally attribute this to uh, Ian Goodfellow and collaborators. And it's kind of exploded into, uh, I think, kind of a broader interest area. The basic idea of a generative adversarial uh, sort of network and, and training things in this way is to come up with a different inductive principle for a generative model. And that's what I really like about this work is kind of adding a new uh, tool to the generative modeling toolbox. We've talked before about unsupervised learning and how unsupervised learning is hard, not least because it's not really clear what the objective is. And you can come up with different ways to think about what you're trying to do. A very common one in the classic one in, in my favorite one is to think about maximizing the probability of the data in some sense. Where what we're trying to do is build a, a density for in the data space, and we're doing well if we have a density that reflects somehow the natural density of the, the sort of the data in the wild. There's other ideas though too that we've talked about that feel often more like optimization. In particular, things like reconstruction error are another very popular way to think about um, to think about unsupervised learning, and. K-means and PCA can both be viewed through the lens of reconstruction, as can things like autoencoders and so on. So one of the challenges of coming up with a rich density model is that you'd like to have a complicated parameterization of possible densities, but most such complicated parameterizations are going to make it infeasible to compute the partition function. So that's the normalization constant of the probability density over data. So just to remind you, probability densities need to, need to have kind of a volume that sums to one. And this is really important in training because if your uh, criterion is like maximum likelihood and you ignore this partition function, this sum, then, um, and the parameters allow for you for that sum to change as a function of the different sort of points in, in the, the parameter space, then what can happen is that your, um, essentially your, training procedure might try to uh, sort of fit the data well by simply blowing up the effective constant that you can't see. Mm -hmm. And, um, or I guess shrinking that constant may, sort of appears to make the likelihood uh, very large if you don't know what it is. And this justify, and this is the reason behind a lot of different work that tries to estimate the gradients of partition functions alongside the gradients of the sort of the score or the energy. So uh, contrastive divergence for restricted pulse machines is a very common example of this where you come up with a very um, sort of coarse estimate of the uh, gradient of the log partition function. Anyway, the point is you need, to you need to get a hold of this normalizer and account for it when you do your training, otherwise bad things happen. So this makes training unsupervised models often very difficult because if it's a big rich parameterization, a complicated model, it may be essentially totally impossible to compute that in any interesting way and training will find some complicated pathologies. The adversarial approach sort of sidesteps this and says, okay, I'm not gonna try to estimate the density of my data, which is what you would normally do. Instead, I'm going to create a situation in which I can fantasize data. So I'm gonna be able to fantasize data from this model. Um, ordinarily, that would be sort of uh, insufficient to actually do training, but then they say, I'm now going to have another, say, deep neural network whose job it is to try to predict whether or not the fantasized data is different than the, than the original data. So that is to say that I have a bunch of training data that I want to model. So let's imagine that these training data are pictures of cats. So I have this other thing that tries to generate pictures of cats. I first fantasize a bunch of pictures of cats, and then I try to train something else to get good at telling the difference between 
the real pictures of cats and my fake pictures of cats. Initially, that's going to totally fail because it's just going to generate a bunch of static and that's going to be easy to tell that it's not cat-like. But the idea is that over time, the generative model's objective is to try to get good at fooling this classifier. And if you have a sufficiently powerful classifier, then there's this race between these two adversaries. Uh, somebody who is trying to generate fake cat images and a powerful classifier that is capable of discriminating between real cat images and fake cat images. So we know from the success of like convolutional neural networks for visual object recognition that we're very good at telling the difference between cats and things that are not cats, right? We have tons and tons and tons of images of cats on the internet and train big neural networks on GPUs and things to, um, to discriminate them very well. So there's a sense in which we have characterized the space of cat images you know, there are at least the sort of the boundaries of the space of cat, cat images very well. So if you could create a generative model that can fool a state-of-the-art cat classifier, then there's a sense in which that generative model must be producing things that are pretty good uh, images of cats. And indeed, that's, that's kind of what these things do. So now you have this generative model that's capable of fantasizing images of, of a particular kind predicated on the idea that you have a really powerful classifier coupled that's sort of competing against it. In the modern era of things like visual object recognition, we have access to such classifiers. So I think this is a really clever sort of additional tool in the toolbox, and, and you can look around online for different um, things that these generative models have been able to fantasize, and I think it's pretty, uh, I think it's pretty fun. And so uh, there was a NIPS paper in 2014 that we can point you to online. We'll have that paper and more about generative models on our website, thetalkingmachines.com. This week's listener question comes from William D. He asks, I've just started an internship at a startup. What are some ways that I could help my team with some standard ML tasks that could be used and implemented by me with the help of my whole team, not only my supervisor, and given that I already have some theoretical background and coding experience? The reason that I asked this question is that I have some knowledge about classifiers and regression models, but I don't really know how I would implement real solutions. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, so I'm going to interpret this question broadly as being one of how do I think about product design in light of being able to do interesting machine learning and AI? That there's a set of what appear to be practical tools for making predictions and understanding structure and data. How do I turn those into a good product experience on, say, a website or an app or something like that? And I think this is a great question and a difficult one to answer in the absence of details about the, the specific product. But many of the things that you use every day are using some kind of machine learning behind the scenes. The process I would go through is to think about ways that you could improve the customer experience, improve the way that your company generates revenue. Maybe that means uh, making better predictions of clicks or better pricing, or maybe it means helping your uh, your users find uh, their find the content faster or with fewer clicks or better customization you want to brainstorm different ways that in you know given some extra knowledge and some extra insight about what a user wants or what a how a user behaves that would allow you to uh, shape the experience around that so that maybe that means if there's a search engine that you're you know, pulling back better results based on a model for the way that the user is behaving. So if you're a retail site, you could imagine looking at the behavior of other users and the behavior of this user and trying to make recommendations to them about things that they might want to find. And that could clearly add value to, uh, to your site. So I think framing is often the hardest part of machine learning. 
that you can learn this about this big and interesting grab bag of tools about how to make predictions, but it can often, often be hard to take the problem you care about that and turn it into an appropriate ML problem. And so I think in general, you kind of want to identify some kind of little sweet spot where if you understood your users a little bit better, you could, you could give them a better experience. And then after you've done that, think about the simplest possible model that you could apply. So that might mean K nearest neighbors classification, or it might mean linear regression or something that's very, very, very simple. Resist the temptation to go out and build a generative adversarial network for this stuff. Like just do the simplest possible thing and try to be rigorous about your experimentation in the way that you interact with users such that you can evaluate the success or failure of this thing. So what I mean by that is identify some situation where if you had better predictions, the user experience would be better according to some metrics that you're pretty clear about. And then gather some data, probably based on the way people are using the site right now. Set this up into a prediction problem that, that feels like the right kind of thing. Get good at that problem and under relatively standard offline metrics like uh, you know, area under the curve and or, or loss, you know, sort of uh, expected loss and things like that. And then once you have a predictor that you like, then try to create a situation where some set of users are being, um, you know, are having their experience modulated by this predictor and a set of users that are just using the site as normal. And then try to evaluate, are you making more sales? Are you getting more clicks? Are you, um, you know, people spending more time on the site or whatever it is that you care about? And then you can honestly and quantitatively assess you know, whether or not your intuition about the value of ML like really, um, really sort of works out. And then over time, you can reuse this framework to build better models and see whether better predictions lead to even better user experiences. So define your problem well, start with the basics and get some metrics so that you can really look at your results. You can have some defined results. Exactly. I think the biggest thing is to really be as um, as sort of honest with yourself as you can about the things that you want to measure and what things matter and, and be rigorous with those, with those analyses. If you've got a question for Talking Machines, email us at thetalkingmachines at gmail.com or tweet us at T-L-K-N-G-M-C-H-N-S. This week's guest on Talking Machines is Ian Murray of the University of Edinburgh. And when we sat down with him at NIPS this past year, we asked him the first question that we ask everybody, how did you get where you are? So um, when I was an undergrad, I was a physicist in Cambridge and I liked physics. I'm not sure whether I'd have made it in a career in physics, but I, I enjoyed it. And I, I did an internship doing fluid dynamics, which was like my favorite thing. And it wasn't so much fun. And <laughs> then I, I took this really awesome machine learning class by this professor David Mackay in Cambridge and it was clear that that was what I wanted to do and I wasn't sure if I wanted to be an academic until I took that class and I went to him and was like where should I do a PhD and he didn't say with him um he did actually (laughs) um and he he gave me a list of places that included Toronto and Gatsby Unit and several other places around the world but I wanted to get out of Cambridge um it was really fortunate, though, because I did get to work with him one day a week for the whole of my PhD. So I had the best of both worlds. So you ended up going to the Gatsby Computational Neuroscience Unit yeah, that's at right. uh, University College London. That's right. Which is only sort of an hour from Cambridge right. on the train. Yeah. So that, not that far out of Cambridge. It's a long way in the UK. In the UK. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, and and when you were there, there were uh, you know a bunch of interesting people sort of moving through through Gatsby. Yeah, so um, Gatsby is a really special place, and when I went there, it was kind of unusual because things had just changed over. Jeff Hinton, who set up the group, had gone back to Canada, so it was really small. It was um, the faculty were just Stephen Garamani, who was my advisor, and uh, Peter Diane, who's an amazing theoretical neuroscientist. And very small number of students. And we used to sit around one table and have tea together. And I think I, as a PhD student, was really lucky because it didn't occur to me to sort of be scared of the faculty or have like a different relationship with them because there were so few of us. And it, it's something that makes me a bit sad when um, I see students now in big departments that they sort of look a bit funny at me as if I'm scary somehow, um, which I don't think you get when there's like a small number. Yeah. So, so what did you work on in your PhD? Um, I, I, I asked this like I don't know the answer yeah. when I've read his thesis several times. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't know whether you know how much I struggled to find a topic because uh, you saw the end product as if, you know, that was the plan all along. Because um, with a PhD, the thing you're meant to do is have this sort of underlying thesis of what you're proposing to the world where, like a lot of other people, I sort of put together the stuff I'd done and pretended that that was the plan all along and put a plan together. So I I was lucky to sort of read quite broadly in machine learning and try lots of things, most of which didn't work. And I, I had all sorts of ideas of things I wanted to do. One of them was density estimation, which is one of my research areas now, but I couldn't get anything to work when I was a PhD student. And at the end, I realized that all of the things I tried to do had used some of the same methods. So I'd done a lot of work on Markov chain Monte Carlo methods, which are useful for lots of models. And so I realized I knew an awful lot about MCMC and I'd fought with it a lot. So I just wrote all that stuff up. <laughs> <laughs> then after you graduated, you went off to Toronto. Yep, I went to Toronto to work with Samuel Weiss, Jeff Hinton and Radford Neal. And... Um, that was really due to their great generosity. Um, Summer Weiss had invited me to Toronto and uh, they just sort of offered me a job really without me even applying for it. So given that that was the perfect job I would have possibly applied for, um, that made the hunt fairly short. And and you spent about two years? Oh, it was three years actually. Oh, three years. Which okay. um, yeah. was a great three years, especially as I did get my faculty job after two years, which is maybe what you're remembering, which That's meant right. the That's third right. year was incredibly relaxed and fun. And I did things <laughs> like just hang out at your place and watch sports. <laughs> <laughs> and then since then, you've been at the University of Edinburgh. Yeah. So I've been there for five and a half years now, and I'm oh my not quite sure what, where that time has gone. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. Um, so what, what, uh, you're in the school of informatics? Is that... Yeah. So that uh, sort of people from North America, I guess, go informatics. What's that? Uh, that was certainly what I thought when I went there. Um, although the Germans are like, well, that means computer science, right? So it's not so weird for them. Um, Edinburgh's got this really long history of different types of information processing in computer science. So they did have separate departments for computer science and AI. AI was its own department, um, Edinburgh's always sort of been one of the centers of artificial intelligence. Um, and so the informatics was the merging of three departments and giving it a different name so that no group of people was marked out as special. <laughs> I see, I see. So what are, you, uh, what are you thinking about these days? It's really just this cumulative thing that everything that I've done in the past sort of keeps going as this sort of ongoing concern. I'm, I just submitted a, a paper to Archive where I pulled out a table of code from my PhD thesis because... 
I just suddenly thought, that was stupid. Why didn't I do this thing before? Somehow it popped into my mind, so I pulled that out, did a small change and wrote it up. And that, you know, it's <laughs> and there's no reason I couldn't have done it like that how long eight years ago? Gone. <laughs> there's no reason I couldn't have done it like that eight years ago, but I didn't think of it. So that's what I did. But um some of those other things that I failed to make any progress on, the density estimation has sort of been going well. And the hope is to combine them all. So um, I've made some great friends in cosmology and astrophysics, um, friends and collaborators, and I'm trying to shoehorn as many of these things into cosmology as I possibly can. Yeah, so talk a little bit more about what you're doing in astronomy and cosmology. All right, so I better pick a project. Um, so you talk about all of them. <laughs> yeah. So um, first of all, like, what's cosmology? Um, it's opposed to astrophysics because astrophysics is the study of stars. So that's astro. Um, and cosmology is the understanding of the universe. There are some cosmologists, I find this quite funny, tell me that like stars are boring. Like they're just these things that happen to be really hot that we can see. And that's helpful because it tells us what's going on underneath. And that's the real stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so some of my work is with cosmologists and some of it is with astrophysicists at a very high level. Uh, there are standard cosmological models that describe how after, shortly after the Big Bang, the structure of the universe formed and what the main components of the universe are. You'll have probably heard that there's a lot of dark matter and there might be this mysterious dark energy in the universe. And these cosmological models describe how that stuff behaves and how it evolves. Um, and the simplest model has a name, Lambda CDM, and it has about seven free parameters. So... One cartoon description of cosmology is let's fit those seven parameters to what we see in the sky. Um, it's just that in between those seven parameters and what we can see in the sky, an awful lot of stuff has happened that we're trying to infer. Um, and we're trying to figure out that stuff from observations of billions of galaxies. So it's pretty hairy statistical problem. <laughs> yeah. So what? So what's your sort of approach? Are you you're basically taking like survey data? And then trying to build a big model and, and then imagining how sort of that model, uh, you know, how different settings of these seven parameters might be consistent with the survey data? Yeah, so you say that as though I'm doing it, but, you know, my collaborators are doing all of that stuff and <laughs> I'm helping with the statistics. But um, an example of one source of information is weak gravitational lensing. And that's a thing where you observe lots of galaxies and the galaxies are like these elliptical blobs that you see in the sky and as there's no preferred direction in the universe we don't think we think those things are uniformly distributed and weak lensing is an effect where galaxies are distorted there's dark matter between us and the galaxies and so when you look at a patch of sky those ellipses are all suspiciously aligned with each other and that's telling you that the light has been bent so one of the signals they do is look across the entire sky and look for these patterns of distortions and trying to in, try to infer the distribution over matter. And, you know, this is a huge investment. There's a $500 million euro project to survey the whole sky that's going to launch and sort of get results in the next sort of decade. Um, and then you kind of want to do the statistics right when you're putting that sort of resource into a project. So um, at the moment, they estimate what's called a power spectrum, which is just a way of describing the statistics of this pattern of distortions. And then there are separate models based on simulations that say how these cosmological models predict different power spectra. 
So one of the things I'm working on is trying to glue these two bits of analysis together in a more principled way. So rather than just sort of trying to match up these power spectra and sort of make them sort of fit, like actually say, what do we believe about cosmology using sort of the correct mathematical statistics? Okay. Right. It seems like there's a kind of like a, a funny little subset of generally Bayesian machine learning that cares about astronomy and, and works on this. And, and of course, there's a larger area of astrostatistics that is, is very serious. Um, so, you know, a couple of years ago, David Hogg has in the past come to, to NIPS. And I know that's someone who you've, you've worked with. Uh, is he involved in, in, in this stuff? He's at NYU. Um, yeah, so uh, my main collaborator on weak lensing at the moment is a woman called Catherine Hymans in Edinburgh. David Hogg definitely works on related problems. I know he thinks about weak lensing. I've actually talked with him about very similar problems, but with power spectra of other signals in the sky. So cosmologists have multiple fields of patterns that they can look at and each of them has their own power spectrum and tells you something different um and david Hogg has a lot of interest so i'm not sure which yeah, particular he, one he's thinking he about he does a little bit about everything <laughs> and, and of course our mutual friend dustin lang uh is somebody who really lives at this interface as well yeah so um dustin lang's an example of someone who really is shifted to being to uh, sitting in a yeah. physics department um and at least with the work I'm most familiar with, I'd describe him as an astronomer or an astrophysicist. Um, you know, he's done a lot of great work looking at stars and planets uh, transiting in front of them and fingerprinting where you're looking in the sky by looking at stars. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, so how? So, what's your sort of role within all this? Doing the modeling, doing the inference. Uh... Um, so the the sort of pilot studies we've done so far is very much Catherine and the other physicists I'm talking to, like very much teaching me and guiding me. So they're very kindly curating programs and text files containing data for me so that it's in a form where I can run machine learning methods on it and then pass them back results, which they can throw back at me or express concern about. But what are the, but what is the, what's the machine learning problem amongst what you've described? So it's not clear exactly what the machine learning problem should be, but here's the way I look at it. Um, they have a lot of simulation data, and that is simulations where they take a large chunk of synthetic universe and simulate gravity and see what falls out and what forms. And so they have a lot of data, but from computer experiments, not from looking at the sky, that describes their theory. So in principle, when they wrote down the maths of the theory, they were done with their theoretical work, but it's hard to understand that maths directly. So they have data of here is what universes could look like with these different cosmological parameters. And at the moment, the way they invert that model is a bit dodgy, frankly. So um, they estimate these power spectra, which are things that you can simulate and things that you can observe. And then the way they go from their estimated power spectra to sort of fitting the cosmological parameters involves making a bunch of statistical approximations. And what I'm wanting to do is use machine learning to avoid making those approximations. So to build a probabilistic model that says how 
power spectra are linked to cosmological parameters or what we should believe about cosmological parameters given um, the power spectra because it's not clear how traditional statistical methods could work. Um, so traditional inference algorithms like Markov chain Monte Carlo um, or other approximate inference algorithms don't apply unless you make a load of dodgy approximations. And that's what they're doing now. I thought what you uh, might say was that you, know, you were going to be tasked with the question of, it, of uh, inferring the, the dark matter that is doing the weak lensing. Right? Um, <laughs> so that's something which I've played with a toy version of. So I entered this Kaggle competition where that was precisely the task. Um, and that was the easy bit. <laughs> did, um, did you win the, you won the competition? Uh, no, I only came second. But the guy who won <laughs> did much the same thing as me. And we both did Markov Chain Monte Carlo to infer the the dark matter locations. Um, there were aspects of what it, um, Tim Salomons, who won, did that I liked, but it's not clear to me whether our results are actually any different because it's it a fairly small test. So. Random seeds. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Um, but what, what's clear is that if you look at a patch of sky, everyone knows how to sample possible realizations of what might be there. And... The fact that we did MCMC wasn't new. The, there was already a package out there called HaloFit that did much the same thing we did. What, what I'm hoping to bring to cosmology is a better understanding of what to do next. Um, because there's this feeling that you should have a, a pipeline that's interpretable where you fit stuff, like you say, where is the dark matter? I think it's here. And then you assume that fitted stuff is correct or you might attach some sort of weight to how confident that prediction is um, and then process those results as if they were data. Um, and what Tim Salomons and I both did was look at how our estimates were going to be used and then guide what we reported so that we would mess stuff up downstream as little as possible. Um, and within the, the scope of this Kaggle competition, it wasn't possible to do anything that would actually be useful for cosmologists because they forced us to do something wrong, which was to report positions. Um, and what we're hoping to do in future is actually propagate all the uncertainty we have through to the final inference so we never have to assume something wrong at an intermediate stage. Is there any sort of opportunity for sort of more general joint inference in which in addition to sort of propagating the uncertainty... Did you, you sort of get to use the likelihoods of later of later stages? What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that you know, you know, if you view what you're doing as a kind of pre-processing that's explained in terms of you know later structure, then you could imagine trying to take advantage of that later structure to improve your inference. Right. So you you could see the physical model that the cosmologists write down as what we'd call a graphical model, right. where you have a sequence of unknown variables that are related to each other. And in statistical machine learning, we're used to passing messages over graphs and sort of sweeping what we know back and forth. And I've seen a few things at this year's NIPS where people are really beginning to think about large-scale modeling in that way. So they might not be writing down a graphical model anymore. It might be a much more complicated model than we used to talk about. But the underlying idea of passing the messages back and forth is the same and these algorithms like variational inference and expectation propagation are being applied at a much more ambitious scale, sometimes with Monte Carlo embedded within them so that we can deal with more and more complicated models. Yeah. 
I, I just, yeah, I, I guess my question was more, you know, this, it seems like astronomy, I mean, um, in, in my different interactions with astronomy, uh, with astronomers and, and sort of people asking these kinds of mm-hmm. questions, often there's, a, you know, there, there is this kind of, I mean, it's almost exactly what you described. There's a sequence of pre-processing steps mm. or, or, or like a very deep stack of processing. Yeah. And it's very, very well understood because yeah. the, the data are so weak in the beginning or the data are so weak the whole way through that the different kinds of amplifications and processing, you know, they, they really need to be sort of written down clearly. Um, but at each stage, uh, one sort of only propagates information up and not down yeah. generally. Um, but it... But like some of the work we've been doing has been trying to really have a sort of a joint model that uh, sort of starts at, uh, you know, you can imagine sort of starts at, uh, you know, a remote galaxy or, or let's say a star, you know, so you've got Planck's law and it has some, you know, has some, the, the star has some characteristics that we understand, that some physics that we think we understand emits photons. You know, these photons, have, you know, are distorted according to point spread functions and then they hit a CCD and then that CCD is amplified and then there's line noise that's Gaussian. You have this kind of mm. big long chain that as you say in graphical models we would view as kind of just a, a giant sequence of latent variables and conditional distributions. Um, but what of course people tend to do is to um, sort of just treat those as pre-processing. You know we denoised it and then we called that our data whereas that, that kind of doesn't fit like would not fit the sensibilities of like you and I so much, right? We would say, ah, oh, we don't denoise data. We like <laughs> add, add the noise as a as a variable into our model, right? Um, so that yeah, that that's kind of what I what I wondered if that was kind of what you were getting at, like the that uh, sort of just doing joint inference on this larger set of things. Yeah, so we effectively want to do joint inference, but then need to work out how to arrange a computation to make that happen. Uh, the, this culture clash is really real. It's really hard to sometimes to get physicists to write down diagrams with arrows pointing in what I think of as the right direction because they think of, well, we start with data, photons hitting a CCD, and then we process. So we have an arrow going to something which is like um, observed ellipticity, um, epsilon obs, and it's like, no, your pixels didn't cause the ellipticity of the galaxy. You had a galaxy with some ellipticity and that created photons in your device. and they, they sort of think about what they want to do rather than what the, the model is when they're thinking about how to do statistics. I've had this exact same experience where, you know, you're talking about some, some parameter and, you're like, and, you know, and they call it the gain, uh, like of a signal. And you're like, oh, okay, so great. So I should probably divide by the gain. You know, I should think of in my graphical model, then I multiplied it by the gain because that's how my signal was amplified. And, they, and they're like, no, 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 that's... You're thinking of one over gain. I'm like, what are you talking about? You had a you had a photon and it you know sort of made an electron for you, and then you amplified that, right? And so you know, the the constant by which you amplified that is the gain. And like, no, no, well, you know, we we're they're pointing the arrow the other way, and and it just makes for frankly a lot of confusion. Plus, this kind of kind of a weird culture, I feel like, of, of sort of documentation. You know, you'll get the the uh, my favorite is you like open up these files that you know like SDSS has, and they'll have a, a field that's like data numbers. Like that's the name of the, like it means that what they mean is like amplified photons, but it's like data numbers. <laughs> I, I've definitely had the experience where, you know, I've been sent a text file where the column is in kiloparsecs or some ridiculous unit. And then, you know, they give me more of the same data. Um, and 
those numbers are all like suspiciously out by a factor of a thousand. And you sort of send them an email saying, did you possibly change the units of that column from the last time you sent me this data? And they go, oh yeah, now it's in megaparsecs. And you, you end up doing like an inference problem on what it is they've given you. There's this weird noise process, which is people, which is a complete pain. Well, and like people can't even agree on like what the what the right unit of brightness is. You know, like there's, there's like logarithmic and linear units and there's, I don't know. And you kind of don't necessarily know. There's this, this unit called nanomaggies that... It's like actually named after David Schlegel's daughter. <laughs> no, I didn't know that. <laughs> so you've been talking a lot about density estimation and or, or sort of implying that you're thinking a lot about density estimation. And um and I know I know you have some of this recent work with like Hugo La Rochelle on like the neuro uh, neural autoregressive density estimator or NADE. That's um, Hugo's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exactly sort of roll off the tongue, although it there needs to be like, you know, gradient nade or grenade or something. Yeah. Oh, John, no. John Bridle wants to come up, us to come up with an excuse to have a paper on lemonade. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> so, um, so is that the kind of, is it, is that the, uh, when you, when you talk about density estimation, is that, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? That's the sort of stuff we've been doing. And I think it's useful. Like I'm beginning to use this stuff in my other applications, but we're not done. I mean, the, there's a lot wrong with that work as well. Um, well, why don't you why don't you talk about it? Yeah. So, shall I say what it is? Why don't you is? explain what it is? Yeah. yeah. So, this work on NAID came out of a few of us in Toronto trying to understand what restrictive Boltzmann machines were doing. So, um, if we did, roll, you find out. Um, well, we got some idea. <laughs> so, if we roll back, oh gosh, how long is it ago? Like seven, eight years ago. These things, restricted Boltzmann machines, were the thing. Yeah, like, they were a big deal. Yeah. Like, everyone was... Super out of fashion. It's like hammer pants. Yeah. So, it's, you know, if we wait five years, you know, yeah. there'll yeah. be a confident winter. and <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. And we'll, we'll, we'll see what the next new shiny thing is. Um, I remember when I first went to NIPS, the, everything was loopy belief propagation. That was, that was what everyone was talking about. Wow. I haven't heard much about that recently. Yeah, that's not that's not a hot topic these days. Yeah. Okay, so we were trying to understand restricted Boltzmann machines, and I was super skeptical. So coming from the Gatsby unit where I'd been doing Bayesian methods, I was like, what is this thing? And Jeff Hinton's going on about how they're amazing, and I didn't really believe him. And so I did a lot of work trying to evaluate them as statistical models. So rather some neural net thing you can do and make pretty pictures of MNIST digits, like are these a useful statistical tool? And, and they do assign uh, a density to the data, unlike a lot of uh, a lot of sort of neural networky things, they are actual probabilistic models. Yeah, exactly. So uh, there's a lot of neural networks at NIPS this year that can create very pretty pictures and they can do great things in vision, but it's not obvious to me how I would plug them into a pipeline in cosmology or some scientific data analysis. Yeah, where... the word I was just going to say the word generative, the phrase generative modeling gets thrown around now in ways that are, I would find I kind of find somewhat unfamiliar in the larger context in which what they kind of mean is that they can come up with a procedure by which they interrogate this thing. Um, but it doesn't mean that it doesn't mean that it sort of assigns density to data, which is what I think of a generative model as being. Right. And, and you know, we're, we're a bit weird in that way that that's, you know, that's what we call a generative model, but I don't think we're in a majority. <laughs> I don't think we are either, but 
<laughs> well, we're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there's trade-offs, right? So there are people at Google DeepMind who are doing neural networks that they call generative models, which you can actually generate from. So maybe we're the crazy ones because they have models that you can generate from. <laughs> whereas, <laughs> whereas there are, you know, multiple machines are hard to generate from. Um, and that makes sense for what they want. So they want to roll out fantasies of what might happen within a decision-making agent. And so they've engineered a system that does what they want. Whereas what I want is to be able to look at a pattern within my model or some transition between an explanation of data and data and say, what is the probability of that thing happening? I want a number so that I can run my inference algorithms and these neural nets that are useful for enforcement learning don't give me that number, whereas NAID is designed to give me the number. So, um, so how did you get to? Well, why don't you explain what NAID is and how you, how you got there from restricted Bolson machines? So, I was using a lot of pretty complicated algorithms to try and get probabilities out of Boltzmann machines. So say, what is the probability of this pattern? So the thing formally defines one, but it's not available yeah, so in what, closed form. So why don't we talk about why that's why that's true? So it, I think this happens because the uh, you can look at the sort of energy associated with any given uh, configuration, and that's the negative log probability, but only up to a constant, right? And right. so you have to somehow... So there's this partition function that causes your probabilities to be sort of not directly useful. Right. So what a Boltzmann machine can do is if you have two images or two pieces of interesting data, it can tell you that one on the right is five times better than the one on the left. So it can give you, you relative like probabilities. like five times more likely. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what it doesn't tell you is exactly what its probability is. And that makes it hard for you to embed it in within a larger model. And why is that why is that hard? Um it's hard because the unknown constant changes depending on context. So if it's part of a larger model where other things are changing, then um this thing we were calling a constant isn't a constant anymore and it messes up the but statistics. It, but it's just one number, why is that hard? Well, so it's not one number, it's really a function of the context of the surrounding model. Oh I see. So NAID was a result of frustration of you can tell I'm not wanting to get into the explanation because it's so boring. I'm not wanting to explain like why we were adding up all these numbers because it was so tedious. So Nade was sidestepping all of these computational difficulties with Boltzmann machines by just um, writing down a tractable model that you could just look at a pattern and directly say that is its probability. There's no unknown constant. And so the idea is that it it basically sort of factorizes the distribution over data, the joint distribution over data into a bunch of little conditional distributions? Yeah. So um, if you were modeling images, instead of asking the machine learning system to say, here's a whole image, what do you think its probability is? You'd ask the machine learning system, what do you think the first pixel in this image is going to be? If I start in the top left, what's that pixel going to be? And it would give you a prediction of what that pixel might be. Um, and then after it's made the prediction, you can tell the learning system, by the way, that top pixel was a pretty pink color of this intensity. And it can go, oh, that's great. Um, I can now tell you that the adjacent pixel is probably also fairly pink, and this is how much it might deviate. Um, and so you would predict one pixel at a time. 
Um, and by looking at how confident the computer was in each of those predictions, you can chain everything together and tell how well it was able to predict the whole image. So it's sort of a divide and conquer. You split up the problem into a bunch of really easy problems. I see. So, so now you can assign a probability quite easily to every to the, the joint of all pixels, and I guess the the price you pay for that is that arbitrary marginal distributions now become very expensive. Yeah. So it's really easy to say what you believe about that first top left pixel, and if um, someone says no, no, I don't care about that. Can you tell me just what you think the um, thousandth pixel somewhere into the image is going to be? Um, I have to say, oh well. I could show you examples of what the first thousand pixels might be, and then you can plot a histogram of what the thousandth one ended up being. Um, but I can't give you a nice like, mathematical description anymore. I see. Um, but so, <laughs> so well, well, so what is how does how does it work? So I, I feel like you know you've explored these kinds of models over time. I know you you found kind of much to your sort of chagrin that like uh, you know uh, simple mixture models often like mixtures of factor analyzers and things like that are often surprisingly good. How did this kind of fit into the to the to the pantheon of density estimators? Um, so, I mean, I should say that these uh, what are called autoregressive models, the models that predict one thing at a time, are actually quite old. Like Brendan Fry was doing this stuff when I was still in high school. So, you know, we're really just contributing to a much bigger picture of stuff that's out there. And it was really Hugo Larochelle that sort of made a nice link between Boltzmann machines and the work we were doing. Um, so our work gives you probabilities of whole patterns, which is useful for building models. As you say, there are other things we can't compute. Um, and we can sample um, examples relatively quickly. So these things could be used within reinforcement learning systems. Um, but as you point out, there are some questions that it can be hard to answer. And I had this great student, Benny, who um, developed a version of this where you could predict things in any order you like. So given given an image, you can predict what you think the thousandth pixel will be if that's the one that's missing, but you could instead predict what the bottom right pixel is if that's the one that's missing. Um, and of course, these things aren't just for images. We're, the point of machine learning is we're developing things that can adapt to any sort of data. And um, Benny also embedded these things within a speech synthesis system, which surprised me. He just decided that he wanted to do a different application at the end of his PhD and knocked up a speech synthesis system in three months, which was pretty impressive. That's, that's really cool. That's, that's very fun. So, um, so how do you see these, you know, these kinds of models then informing, um, you know, then informing like your work in, in cosmology? Right. So, um, in cosmology, the input patterns wouldn't be images anymore. They'd be what is it that we want to predict from? So, for example, to make the problem simpler to start with, we could say, what do, what do cosmologists currently do? So they currently do a lot of anal analysis of billions of galaxies. They estimate power spectra that say how these things are distributed across the sky. And then they want to go from their estimate of a power spectrum to what we believe about cosmology. And as you were alluding to earlier, there's lots of clever things we could do, but here's the dumb place to start. We could simulate cosmologists. 
So we can simulate <laughs> we can simulate the whole universe. <laughs> First, <laughs> and it includes cosmologists. Yeah, and, and they includes, understand all this stuff. Yeah. So we, we simulate the large scale structure of the universe, so where all the dark matter is and all of that stuff. And then we simulate some cosmologists constructing a telescope at one point in that universe and looking at stuff. And that telescope will be imperfect and we can simulate that too. Then we simulate the cosmologists doing a bunch of hacky stuff that you and I might not like that much, but they're going to do it, so whatever. Um, and they end up with an estimate of the power spectrum. And so lots of stuff happened, but we can forget about most of that and just write down on our computer, here are some cosmological parameters, and here is some power spectrum estimate that some simulated cosmologist produced in some way. And then we can do that whole thing a bunch of times. Um, doing that whole thing might cost $200 of compute time, by the way, but... Um, so we might not want to do it a billion times, but we can do it, you know, some number of times. Um, and that's data for machine learning, right? Because now we can learn the relationship between cosmological parameters and whatever this thing cosmologist produces, which is an estimate of a power spectrum. So now when we have a real cosmologist who looks in the sky and estimates a power spectrum, we can just bung that into our machine learning system and say, what do you think? And it will say, ah, this is what I think about the cosmological parameters that my imaginary universe produ produced to create this cosmologist so i mean when people do this kind of thing in more general settings like uh you know computer vision or uh or i don't know climate simulation there's always a big risk that you know your simulator of your you know virtual universe and the way that your cos your your sort of uh, fantasized cosmologist takes measurements that there's imperfections that uh that turn out to have a big influence on on what you learn so so how do you how do you sort of calibrate these things without um, damaging them based on the only the, the fact that we only have one actual universe instead of cosmological parameters? Yeah, so uh, by being very, very careful, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a big concern, and no matter how you're going to do the inference, whether you're going to implement it with these crazy neural networks or whether you're going to do something more traditional, you're stuffed if you've made some big modeling assumption that's wrong. So anyone has to do some sort of sensitivity analysis that explores the space of what variations might be there, what things we don't know. Um, and so there's multiple sources of uncertainty. Um, our fundamental physical model might be wrong. That's what we're trying to infer. We might have details of how our instruments work incorrectly. Um, and then we could only afford to simulate this thing a limited time number of times. Like we, you know, we we had a certain amount of money we thought we could get away with putting on the grant to ask for simulations, um, or that we thought was a good use of public money to put in the simulations. And so we're not going to learn this mapping perfectly. And so we have to combine all of these uncertainties. And to be honest, that's why it's still a research problem. That's why I'm working on it, because we don't actually know how to do all these things. Um, we want to have Bayesian neural networks, really, so we can track all the uncertainty. And yet there are half a dozen different ways to do that, that people at this NIPS are developing. And it's not clear which of them, if any, will work yet. So that's yeah, why I'm working and, on it. And it's a super hard problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, the uh, I, I have horses in that race, and it's it's not obvious what the right thing to do is. So we're kind of at the stage of trying lots of things in, in the kind of the era of understanding more about this kind of computation. Yeah. Something I think you'd be interested in is that I'm interested in like active simulate active selection of these simulations. So I know you, you know your group has done a whole load of work on if I'm fitting something like a classifier or a regression model 
um, what experiment should I do next so that my classifier gets better? And what I'm wanting to do here is say, which simulation should I run so some conditional density estimator gets better? And that seems pretty hard, but I've claimed I'll be able to do it, so I, I hope I can. <laughs> well, and I mean, that, that actually, you know, is a very classic problem in statistics. Uh, you know, the, the Bayesian optimization stuff we've been doing has been very focused on kind of finding the minimum of, you know, complicated functions. But what you're describing there is kind of goes back to like Fisher, right, in terms of trying to come up with the, uh, the right, uh, you know, the, what's the right experiment that maybe contracts my posterior the most about what these parameters are or something. Yeah, I don't think Fisher was like fitting conditional distributions in 20 dimensions with thousands of inputs though. <laughs> no, that's true, but... The, We've got uh, bigger computers than he had. Yeah, that's true, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> we can sort of, you know, there, there is this this kind of like, you know, very nice uh, uh, larger area of trying to, trying to make these decisions rationally. Yeah, at a high level, nothing's new. <laughs> Ian Murray of the University of Edinburgh. Really fascinating to talk with him. He's one of my favorite collaborators. I really, really love working with Ian. He's great. So many insights and, and just, yeah, really, really fun to work with. That's it for us this week. I'm Catherine Gorman. And I'm Ryan Adams. Tune in next episode.